Faye, I'm so excited. I'm heading to Seattle for maternal fetal medicine. It's going to be great, but I got to remember the OBG project in my back pocket. Definitely. I think one thing that's going to be really helpful for us in terms of learning how to ultrasound is going to be their second trimester ultrasound atlas. You can use that second trimester ultrasound atlas to supplement your learning by looking at normal pictures. And then when you put that probe to the belly, you're going to see exactly what you're supposed to see. And you know that you've got the right picture because the OBG project's already got it outlined for you. The second trimester ultrasound atlas is part of their subscription process called OBG First, which if you're a chief resident, you can get free for one whole year. OBG First, in addition to the atlas, gives you a lot of other cool features such as a library to bookmark your favorite summaries from the OBG project, as well as summaries sent to your phone every single day of the latest guidelines and evidence-based medicine. If you're interested, go ahead and go on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com to check it out. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over, Over Coffee. Coffee. Today's episode is going to be a longer one, probably, but it's one that we have some passion behind. So, um, without further ado, we're going to talk about preventing the primary C section. Faye, what are our learning objectives today? Today, we're going to discuss the state of cesarean sections in the United States right now. We're going to learn about some reasons behind cesarean section and also the recommendation for cesarean section by the World Health Organization. And we're also going to elucidate some evidence-based ways of decreasing the primary cesarean section rate. So Nick, talk to us a little bit about the history of the C-section. So why do we have C-sections? Yeah, so... You know, there's this age-old problem, I guess, of like if the baby can't come out vaginally, then how's it going to get out? Right. Um, and so C-sections resulted as like an option to address this problem. The first documented C-sections were around 1750 BC, but the surgery then was generally performed only on a dead or dying mom with the hope of saving the child or so that way the infant could be buried separately from the mom for religious purposes. And really for the first 3,000 years of cesarean section, mortality rate was 100%. Yikes. Yeah, like literally through the 18th century, that is the story of C-sections. Something changed in the mid-19th century, which was anesthesia, as well as things like hand washing and surgical technique really kind of developing well. Um, and so we start to see a little bit of a change then in the 18th to 19th century with respect to that horrifying number. Nowadays, kind of the as things have changed in the 19th to 20th century, you see the introduction of silver sutures to close the hysterotomy, the introduction of antibiotics with the discovery of penicillin by Alexander Fleming. Again, these things all decrease the risk of certain death as a result of cesarean section. And with this, we also start to see the medicalization of birth, too. You know, right. With the more opportunity for C-section, um, women were delivering in the hospital. And then kind of with the story of the 20th century, by 1955, 99% of births were happening in a hospital environment. The rate of C-section was low in spite of all of this until about the 1970s. 
And in the 1970s, the next thing that we see is the introduction of electronic fetal monitoring. The bane of my existence. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the bane of everybody's existence, right? Like, it, <laughs> And we've talked about it on the podcast before and sort of the drawbacks and the benefits of electronic monitoring. But it's interesting to think about that prior to the 1970s and the introduction of EFM, C-section rates were less than 10%. And by 1980, it was 17% of births, 25% by 1988. And by recent measures, 2016, the rate's almost 32%. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kind of in the end, though, we had this story of the C-section as something that was intended to save babies or save moms. Right. And so... I guess kind of that begs the question, Faye, why are we trying to decrease the C-section rate at all? Isn't the, this purpose good? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, our purpose in making this podcast today is not to say that we don't want any cesarean sections to occur because we realize that C-sections are sometimes necessary. However, along with that, there are still risks to C-sections. It is a major abdominal surgery. So risks for mom would be things like higher risk of bleeding, higher risk of infection, a risk of a surgical injury, and of course, more thrombotic events compared to vaginal deliveries. There's also more pain, longer recovery time, maybe a poor birth experience for the mother. And then for the future, there's higher risks for uterine rupture during labor, surgical injuries um, because of uh, scar formation, hemorrhage, infection, abnormal placentation, and even possibly a cesarean hysterectomy. For babies, there are also risks. There can be some respiratory difficulties for the baby. There may be some difficulties with breastfeeding. And there is a slight increase in the risk of intracranial hemorrhage. Um, It's 0.1% in C-sections when the mom has been in labor compared to 0.05% when there's a standard, when there's a spontaneous vaginal delivery. So I guess you know, we're talking about C-sections. We really care since, you know, we're from the United States. So we want to know how is the U.S. doing compared to the rest of the world, Nick? Yeah. I mean, we're up there, frankly, as we discussed, you know, about a 31, 32% cesarean section rate in the United States. Compare, It's kind of difficult to compare place to place. You yeah. know, you question these like apple to orange type of comparisons, I guess. There are some countries that have a less than 5% cesarean section rate, but a lot of the times that's really because of lack of access to cesarean section. Right. Um, There are some places that maybe more considered our peers like Great Britain or places in Europe like France and Spain that are about a 20% cesarean section rate. Um, But then there are some places, um, particularly in Central and South America, where C-section rates inch close to 60%. That's crazy. Yeah, it really, really is. Um, And you got to kind of wonder about why there's this global variation. Right. Okay, but I think what's kind of really interesting, though, beyond this is that C-section rates, first of all, aren't explained by whether or not births are performed like in hospitals or other birth institutions. Right. There are some places, some countries where 95% of births are in institutions and the rate is still highly variable, like between less than 10 and up to 60%. And, you know, if you ever go hear a talk by Neil Shaw, you know, he kind of always points out the facts that really like one of the main primary risks of cesarean section particularly for somebody in labor, is the hospital that you go to. So there's huge variation from state to state. There's huge variation from hospitals in the same state, in the same city. Um, And so, you know, it's really hard to kind of pin down exactly where this difference in cesarean section is coming from. 
why are we kind of harping on this and why do we think that kind of pointing out this variation is really important? Well, overall, we kind of explains the risks. Faye did a great job talking through the risks of C-sections for both moms and babies, but kind of there's a very real risk as well kind of between patients, hospitals, and physicians, midwives, everybody involved in the birth team. Now, it changes the dynamic in terms of how you give birth. There's a great effort out there to try and find like what the right rate of cesarean section is. Now, the Joint Commission is now starting to require hospitals report their nulliparous term singleton vertex or NTSV cesarean section rate um, by July of 2020. And they've kind of set a standard of if you're above 30%, that's a reportable measure. Mm -hmm. um, whether that's like the right number or not, I don't know. But at the same time, like people are starting to look at this and become interested. No, we've pointed out, I guess, Faye, almost a third of U.S. births, regardless of where they are, are C-sections. Yeah. Why are we having so many? Well, there's been a lot of proposed reasons behind the increased rate of C-sections. And actually, very famously, Dr. Stephen Clark in September of 2018 published a paper in the Gray Journal talking about, you know, sh should we really be doing something about the cesarean delivery rate? And he said something that was very interesting, which is whether too high or too low, the current U.S. cesarean delivery rate is the expected result of the unique demographic, geographic, and social forces driving it and is unlikely to change significantly given the limitations of current technology to otherwise satisfy the demands of these forces. And so really, I think he's saying here the C-section rate in the United States is the way that it is, and there's not much we can do about it right away. Mm -hmm. um, and he talks about three things um, that kind of drive up the C-section rate. One is patient expectation. One is the medical legal system and also limitations in technology. And, you know, I kind of want to challenge him a little bit, um, which may be a little controversial given that we're <laughs> fourth-year residents. And this is Dr. Clark who wrote a paper about how to manage Category 2 tracings, um, which, you know, we follow very very religiously at our hospital. But, you know, if we talk about patient expectations, you know, are, are people really requesting C-sections? Because – Looking at the Childbirth Connections Listening to Mothers 3 survey, really only 2% of patients are requesting C-sections for no apparent medical reason, and actually 13% of them feel pressured to have a C-section by their provider, and this increases to 22% when they've had a prior C-section. So I feel like you know patient expectations may not necessarily be a reason behind this. Hmm. The second one is the medical legal system, right? Doctors are afraid that patients will sue. We're in OBGYN. We know from what our attendings tell us. It's not whether or not we're going to get sued, it's when. Um, but if you look at the data of states with more malpractice suits or states that have higher malpractice payouts, they don't necessarily have this correlation to C-section rates. And I do have some graphs that we're going to put onto our website that you can take a look at as well. And the last thing that I uh, that I think you know Dr. Clark talks about is this limitation in technology, which is which is an interesting point because our technology right now really doesn't predict outcomes in in low risk women, right? Electronic fetal monitoring has not been shown to change those outcomes. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is kind of where things are. So let's kind of talk and switch gears a little bit and talk about what are the recommendations. And we can talk a little bit more about the NTSV rate and whether the recommendations by the World Health Organization of what the C-section rate actually should be. Yeah. So I guess to start there, Faye, we mentioned earlier the NTSV or again, um, the nulliparous singleton, nulliparous term singleton vertex 
rate of delivery. And again, this is exactly what it sounds like for patients who are having their first term pregnancy, um, first singleton term pregnancy in a vertex presentation, how many of those patients go on to cesarean section. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a measure that is proposed by the Agency for Healthcare Quality and Research as a potential measure to compare cesarean delivery rates across the nation with you know, some good purpose, right? Like generally speaking, this should be a fairly homogenous group of individuals having their first baby at term. And so theoretically, we should be able to compare labor practices and cesarean delivery rates amongst this population. Others might argue that the NTSV rate doesn't account for certain things with risk or doesn't account for everything, but it's kind of the measure that we have right now. And so, again, I don't think that's to say that we shouldn't look for other measures, but this is something, again, that does show a huge difference based on where you practice. The WHO has come out with some recommendations regarding cesarean delivery rate, and we'll post kind of some graphs from the WHO on our website, but one of the first questions coming from them are that, do cesarean delivery rates actually correlate with maternal mortality? There's a 2013 study authored by the WHO that demonstrated the percent birth by cesarean delivery that compared the percentage of births by cesarean delivery and compared that with the degree of maternal mortality. Um, And they grouped this out by countries considered in a couple of different tiers, the rich, upper middle, lower middle, and poor countries based on um, socioeconomics. In low, middle, or poor countries, cesarean section rate is low, but maternal mortality is high. So on this side of the graph, you see a correlation. Right. Once you get towards the middle of the graph, there seems to be kind of a happy medium at which cesarean section rate and maternal mortality rate is no longer correlated. And this applies really to countries considered in the rich or upper middle category. And this seems to be around 20%. You know, Great Britain and European countries kind of live in this territory as well. For Great Britain, cesarean section rate is 20% and maternal mortality is 8 per 100,000 live births. But then when you get kind of to the far end of the other side of the graph, you know, where there's high C-sections, again, there's a loss of correlation. The United States sits over here. C-section rates are almost 40%, and the maternal mortality rate actually goes up to 30 per 100,000 deaths. So again, not to say that this demonstrates a true rate of cesarean section, the like happy number that we need to come to, but it is an interesting question that, you know, maybe there's something here with respect to, again, the C-section's original intention, which is to improve measures with respect to maternal mortality. Faye, what about neonatal mortality? Yeah, and I think a lot of people will also argue that, well, you're doing C-sections to save babies. So the WHO had a very similar graph looking at cesarean delivery rates in 2012 per 100 live births and then looking at neonatal mortality rate in 2012 per 1,000 live births. And so what they show is that below a certain percentage of cesarean delivery rates, there does seem to be a, a correlation Um, of neonatal mortality to cesarean delivery rates. So past a certain point, you're doing too few C-sections. You're not doing enough C-sections to save babies. And so there does seem to be almost like a linear correlation. However, past a certain percentage, that line starts to become straight. It starts to become horizontal. There's no more correlation between cesarean delivery rates and decreases in neonatal mortality. And that rate is around 19%. So really what we can conclude here is that C-section is a necessary procedure. 
if you don't have access to cesarean delivery, mothers and babies will suffer. However, past a certain percentage, there may not be any additional maternal or fetal benefit. And in fact, the WHO has released a statement in 2015 that the ideal rate for cesarean section is somewhere between 10 to 15 percent. So I think, you know, we've kind of talked about the evidence behind why we do C-sections. We've talked about what potential recommendations could be for a C-section rate target for us. Mm-hmm. So what can we do then to actually decrease the C-section delivery rate in the U.S.? And what has been done before to decrease the C-section rate in other parts of the country? One of the first things we can think about are how we manage labor. And there are a couple of different things we can talk about within this. One of the most common reasons for cesarean section in the United States is arrest of labor, Um, whether that's arrest of dilation, arrest of descent, um, or a failed induction of labor, so to speak. And there are actual definitions to failure to progress that we all need to keep in mind as giving women the best opportunity for a vaginal birth that they can have. Um, You can find these definitions in the ACOG-SMFM joint document called the Obstetric Care Consensus Number 1, the Safe Prevention of the Primary Caesarean Delivery. Um, Again, there were three different categories that they define for arrest. And kind of to predicate these categories, they define that active labor starts at six centimeters of cervical dilation. Again, six centimeters of cervical dilation, which is a kind of historic change from when we really considered it four centimeters previously. So for an arrest of dilation, women who have at least six centimeters of cervical dilation achieved and also have rupture of membranes achieved should have adequate contractions as measured by an IUPC or by palpation for at least four hours or inadequate contractions with oxytocin administration to try and make those contractions adequate for at least six hours before considering cesarean delivery. So again, for arrest of dilation in active phase after six centimeters, need to have rupture of membranes with adequate contractions for four hours or inadequate contractions despite oxytocin for six hours. A second stage arrest, again with active pushing, depends a little bit on characteristics of the mother. We break it down into multiparous and nulliparous patients, and then whether they have an epidural or not. So for multiparous patients who do not have an epidural, they should be permitted at least two hours of pushing before declaring an arrest. For nulliparous patients, they need to have at least three hours of pushing before you declare an arrest. And then you can also add one additional hour if they have an epidural on board. So for multips, they get three hours and nullips four hours. Again, as long as you're documenting progress, you can continue to push. And you can also do things like manually rotate or consider operative vaginal delivery to, again, prevent these second-stage arrest cesareans. Faye, what about um, kind of actual labor management styles? So this is something that's really interesting because it seems like labor management style may not necessarily matter. So... I'm talking about the labor progression study, which was conducted by Dr. Bernitz and her colleagues in 2018. What they did was they looked at different obstetric units, and they either had the obstetric units follow the WHO partographs versus the Zhang partographs. They had over 7,000 women in 14 different obstetric units, and then they kind of looked at the cesarean delivery rate. Very interestingly, there was no difference in intrapartum cesarean section between the groups. 
but there was an overall decrease in C-section rate compared to before the study began. So after the study began, in both groups, those who followed the WHO partograph and the Zhang partograph had lower C-sections than when they first began. And this led the authors to conclude that maybe just because there was some close focus on assessing labor progression, those people, the providers who were helping these women through labor knew that someone was watching them and looking to see what they were doing, that this was what led to the decrease in C-section more so than just use of the guidelines. Interesting. So I think this kind of brings us to some other studies and some other evidence that could help us decrease the primary cesarean guidelines. Do you want to talk about some of these, Nick? Because I know that you had actually talked about a lot of these in our grand rounds. Yeah. So I think one of the first things that is interesting to look at that a couple of institutions have already employed is publishing open access to cesarean data. Um, And it's kind of a scary thought to think about that you could walk onto your labor floor and then on a bulletin board or, you know, somewhere in an office, they have like Dr. Smith with her NTSV cesarean section rate sitting there next to, you know, Dr. Stone, whose cesarean section rate is right there. Um, But kind of the sort of advantage of that is kind of thinking about someone as an outlier and having a moment to reflect on your practice. Again, it's not to necessarily abuse or discourage or do anything with respect to cesarean section rates, but to think about your practice style, to think about where your C-sections are coming from, you know, and if you have to risk adjust, you risk adjust, but it's just an interesting comparison. In terms of places that have actually done this, um, the California Maternal Quality Collaborative has piloted this in some hospitals with a good reduction in cesarean delivery rate. And kind of right up the road from us at Beth Israel, they have published data demonstrating a decrease of their NTSV cesarean rate based on a number of bundled interventions over eight years from 35% to 21%. But their single best year of improvement was in 2014 when they unmasked cesarean data by practitioners and shared those amongst all of them. That's really interesting. So, you know, again, not to say that like you want to punish somebody or say, aha, you C-section too much. But it is interesting just to take a look at your peers and say, why am I so different? Mm-hmm. Kind of in the same breath are cesarean audit committees. Um, and I don't know, Faye, if you want to take this on as like another kind of recommendation that we've looked at. Yeah, sure. So the C-section audit committees are designed to review all unplanned cesarean deliveries. So basically you have a group of people who prepare and interpret data and look for opportunities for improvements in terms of provider, nurse, or patient education. And what they do is they'll take a case, talk it over, look at everything that has happened, and then actually provide individualized feedback for improvement of practice based on a more nuanced classification that adjusts for risks in your specific population. Because some people may say, well, you know what, the C-section rate at our hospital may be higher than the hospital down the road because all of the high-risk patients come to us. Mm -hmm. And they may not necessarily go to that community hospital down the road. And so it's very easy for them to have an NTSV cesarean rate of 15% while we have one of 35%. 
And actually, there has been some data looking at cesarean audit committees, and meta-analyses have demonstrated a reduced C-section rate stemming from a cesarean audit in concert with multifaceted programs to reduce C-sections. Um, and again, I think this continues to play on that Hawthorne effect that we've been talking about, where there can be some change of behavior just from being watched, and that is actually what has led to the success of these uh, audit committees. Um, what are some other ways that we could potentially decrease the C-section rate, Nick? Yeah. An additional measure is, again, alluding back to what we talked about earlier about arrest and actually using a labor dystocia checklist. So several quality collaborative groups have put together these checklists surrounding labor dystocia, again, based on that ACOG SMFM obstetric consensus that are evidence-based, objective, and they don't call into question somebody's interpretation of labor progress. Those are just the guidelines. And so at that point, you can kind of say, I've followed the steps, I've given somebody their best shot at a vaginal delivery, and this is just not going to happen this way. Right. This overall kind of decreases primary section by preventing a premature cesarean for indications of labor dystocia. In some of these cases, they've actually used double doc reviews where if you're declaring a cesarean for an arrest, a second physician is involved to kind of take a look at the labor dystocia checklist as well um, and to make an assessment. You know, And what I think this has done is also helped to invite operative delivery back. For instance, for a second stage arrest, if another doc comes in and say, you know what, actually, I think that we could get this out vaginally using some forceps or something, you know, that potentially is just a good opportunity to reinforce practices that allow communication across larger teams in hospitals. Yeah. Um, and I guess speaking of that, Faye, we also want to advocate for team communication. Yeah, absolutely. So the team communications that we're talking about here is really to make sure that everyone who is taking care of this laboring patient, so the provider, the nurse, support people, and even the patient themselves are all on the same page as to what's going on. And so potentially putting a whiteboard into the patient's room to document their partograph and potentially compare the where the patient is compared to um, where others would be based on different partographs would help the patient kind of understand where they are in their labor progress in comparison. And they can themselves can see when they're falling off that labor partograph um, and help everyone kind kind of be on the same page as to where they are in labor and then also be a way to help document and say, you know what, we have given this patient the best shot possible. It also allows for feedback from the patient and their support people to say, I really would like to continue trying because I'm really not that far off from this partograph. All right, Faye, I know that was a big episode, um, but let's take a second and try and summarize what we've talked about. So first, Nick did a great job of talking about this history of C-sections. Really, for the first 3,000 years, there was a 100% mortality rate, and its sole purpose was to separate the mother from the infant. But as we've gotten into the 20th century, C-sections have now been used to save babies and to save mothers. However, we have noticed an increase in the cesarean rate as birth has become more medicalized. We certainly don't disagree with the use of cesarean section. We think it's a necessary tool, but in terms of decreasing cesarean sections from overuse, um, we want to think about the risks of cesarean. Again, we've talked about these before that include bleeding, risk of infection, thrombotic events, recovery, experience considerations, and things for the future like abnormal placentation, hysterectomy, uterine rupture, um, and the risks to baby, including respiratory or breastfeeding difficulties and hemorrhage. We then moved on to kind of talk about how the U.S. was doing with the rest of the world, and we sort of framed this as there's a lot of variation 
variation across the world, across the country, across probably your city and the different hospitals that are there too, that aren't like totally explained away by differences in the population. Of course, there are many reasons as to why the C-section rate in the United States is the way that it is. However, we do think that something potentially can be done about that. And so because of that, we decided to check with the World Health Organization and their recommendations. The World Health Organization essentially grouped countries based on if they were considered rich, upper middle, lower middle, and poor in terms of social economic status, and looked at their C-section rates and found that really past a 20% C-section rate, especially in countries that are considered rich or upper middle, which the United States certainly is a part of that group, a C-section rate of greater than 20% does not lead to better maternal mortality outcomes. The WHO then did the exact same thing for countries as well as neonatal mortality. And again, past a rate of about 19%, there was no decrease in neonatal mortality with rising C-section rates. We propose two things that can easily be done to help reduce the cesarean section rate. One of those things was to remember the actual definitions of labor arrest. Active labor occurs at six centimeters of cervical dilation. So to call for an arrest in active phase, there either needs to be an arrest of dilation at, at or after six centimeters that has rupture of membranes with either adequate contractions for four hours or inadequate contractions despite the use of oxytocin for six hours. A second stage arrest, if you've achieved full dilation and started pushing, for multips occurs after two hours and for nullips occurs after three hours with an additional hour allotted of pushing if an epidural is being used. We also talked about labor management styles and really showed that kind of based on use of partographs, there is not much of a difference in intrapartum cesarean section rate when using the WHO partograph versus the old Jang partograph. But there are decreases in cesarean delivery rate in a before and after kind of analysis, begging the question that if you just pay attention to the labor curve, you might be able to decrease your C-section rate. We then talked a little bit about what we can do now um, and evidence-based ways that other places have used to decrease the C-section rate. So we talked about an open access to cesarean data, meaning publishing providers' cesarean data information. We also talked about having a cesarean audit committee, so an individual group that looks at um, your specific hospital or specific providers' cesarean deliveries for unplanned C-sections and giving individualized feedback. We then talked about labor dystocia checklists that, again, frame those definitions into something that everyone can see um, to allow for everyone to just say, no, these are the guidelines and these, this is why we're doing a C-section at this time. And then finally, we were advocating for improved transparent team communication, including the birthing practitioner, the nurses, the support persons, and the patient herself with respect to rationale for birth interventions or cesarean delivery. Um, one of those proposed systems is using a whiteboard or something to document part of graph so that way patients can see where they are in a labor curve compared to a standard patient on the labor curve um, so they know how their progress is going and what we expect. All right, I think that brings us to the end of our preventing the primary cesarean section episode. I know there's much more to be said, but we are supposed to be a short podcast, and therefore um, we'll have a lot more reading and adjunct materials on our website. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. We also want to thank our co-residents, Chi Fong Wang, Andre Delinko, Mary Ruhutina, Deanna Glassman, Julia Shinnick, 
and Leanne Free, um, who helped put together all of the material for this Grand Rounds that we did, as well as the podcast today. So if you like this podcast, go ahead and go on to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, any of your other podcatchers, and give us a five-star rating and review. Find us online on social media on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee One, on Facebook at Creogs Over Coffee, on Instagram at Creogs Over Coffee. Or if you love the show, want to give us some support, head on over to our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Coffee. Get yourself some swag or a shout out on the show. For any adjunct learning materials, go ahead and go onto our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. If you have an impassioned response to our episode today, or you have anything to add, are concerned about, or just want to say hello, send us an email, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.